Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Hello, and welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm your host, James Stansel. And today I have the pleasure of talking with Tommy J. Curry, the author of The Man Not, Race, Class, Genre, and the Dilemmas of Black Manhood. Notice genre, not gender. And if you're wondering why that's the case, you'll learn a little bit more about that when you hear Tommy during this interview. And the book is published by Temple University Press. And Tommy is a professor Hello and welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm your host, James Stansel. And today I have the pleasure of talking with Tommy J. Curry, the author of The Man Not, Race, Class, Genre, and the Dilemmas of Black Manhood. Notice genre, not gender. And if you're wondering why that's the case, you'll learn a little bit more about that when you hear Tommy during this interview. And the book is published by Temple University Press. And Tommy is a professor of Philosophy and Africana Studies at Texas A&M University. I really think you're going to like this interview with Tommy Curry. And this book is the first, I think, in a long line of books on black male studies. So pay close attention to this interview and remember that name, Tommy J. Curry. Enjoy. Hello and welcome back to the New Books Network, the African-American Studies channel. I'm your host, James Stansel, and I have the great pleasure today of being here with another Texan. It's my second Texan of the week, Brother Tommy J. Curry of Texas A&M. Uh, he is a professor of philosophy and Africana studies at Texas A&M University. And we're going to be talking with him today about his book. It's uh, uh, newly published uh, by Temple Press. It's the... Uh, Man Not, The Man Not, Race, Class, Genre, and the Dilemmas of Black Manhood. How you doing today, Mr. Curry? Dr. Curry, how's it going? I'm doing well, sir. How are you? I'm doing pretty well. And I'm, I'm in Houston. You are not currently in Texas, but, you know, as we say in Texas, uh, 
we may not be from Texas, but we got here as quickly as we could, right? Have you heard that one? <laughs> I've heard that one before. Yeah, I've, I've, heard, I've, that one before. I've heard that one that one before as well. Um, so before we kind of get into your book, the, the Man Knot, and I'm, I must mention it's, it's it's become becoming critically acclaimed. It's doing very well. So congratulations to you for Thank that, you. sir. Thank you. Um, but you know, I often try to start out with getting um, our, our scholars to talk a little bit about their background and their motivations. Can you tell me a little bit about, you know, your professional background and your personal background and what got you interested in this topic, Tommy? Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, I'm a first generation uh, student. Okay. I was a first generation student from uh, from Lake Charles, Louisiana. OK. OK. So so from the south, I grew up around working class uh, black men and women, mm-hmm. uh, black folks and families who generally cared about each other, who did everything they could to make sure they they made something out of nothing. Right. Uh so when I when I went when I went up north uh, to go to school, <laughs> uh, you know, I started I started hearing theories about black people, mm-hmm. uh, especially theories about black men that never resonated with me. Mm. Uh, I actually made a concerted effort to take gender studies uh, to learn about the construction of gender. Uh, I, I took I mean, got in grad school. I had to take maybe four or five uh, classes in feminism. Right. Uh, and the depictions of black men in each of those classes we're so far away from the black men that I grew up with, even mm. the black women that I grew up with, mm. uh, that it was unbelievable to me. Okay. Uh, my grandmother was actually a domestic. She used to clean the houses for white folk. Mm-hmm. And I never forget, you know, her talking about how tired she was and the fact that she did this to take care of her family. Mm-hmm. But then at the same time, the men in her family were working docks. You know, we're, we're doing we're doing, you know, in and out jobs mm-hmm. uh, just to try to keep keep families together. Okay. Uh, so the experience that I had about how I looked at black men, their concern for black women and children, uh, how hard they worked, how, how working class black men in the South literally worked themselves to death, mm-hmm. uh, doing anything and everything they can just to try to provide for families. Right. Uh, never. It did. That experience brought up in that environment did not reflect in the theories I saw coming out of the academy. Mm. And being a young black man, you know, and I, you know, it's, it's a, the text is a reflective kind of project for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was always a high academically achieving black male. Mm-hmm. Uh, I basically have 4.0, well, 3.7 to 4.0 sure. uh, through my whole academic career. Uh, I can't remember a time I've ever gotten a seat. Uh, mm. So, you know, through college, grad school, whatever, you know, um, in college, I majored in, I had three majors and I had A's in practice. I think I had four B's my college career. Mm-hmm. Uh, so those things resonated with me because there was always a contradiction in the way that I was perceived by, by my peers. Mm. I was often in high school, the only black male in the advanced classes mm-hmm. in college it was maybe a handful of 10 or 12 that I ever saw on campus. Right. So that underrepresentation uh, made a difference to me and how, how black men were treated, how black men were always thought to be aggressive, how, you know, black men were always thought to be incompetent. Mm-hmm. These stereotypes that I saw young black males go through both in high school and college really made me start thinking about a need to start talking about black men differently. Mm. And when I finished my Ph.D. in 2009, uh, I got hired at Texas A&M. When I entered the academy, I thought that my primary research was going to be critical race theory. I was friends with Derek Bell. Okay. Uh, I wrote my dissertation. Yes. And Derek 
Uh, I corresponded with him for two or three years. So I was more interested in kind of explaining structural and permanence of racism theories um, than specifically focusing on subjects. Okay. But after being in the university for two or three years, I saw this phenomenon developing where it became routine for black male scholars to be embarrassed, uh, emasculated, and attacked at conferences for disagreeing with the dominant gender policy. Mm. So black men were being forced to concede that they were patriarchal, uh, that they were inherently violent, uh, that they've somehow done some wrong uh, to black people and black women specifically uh, in just existing and being there. Mm. And I'll tell you, you know, one of the chapters in the book uh, is on Eldridge Cleaver's lost manuscript, The Book of Lives. Mm -hmm. And I was given a special session at Asala a few years back to talk about it. Okay. And in the and this is, you know, this is what I mean about the threat construction. So in the in the chapter, uh, I talk about Michelle Wallace and how she concedes that what she said about black men was just a fiction. It wasn't true. And there was. You know, overwhelmingly, people in the audience supported it. People thought it was a great paper. Mm -hmm. But there's one lady, uh, you know, who identified herself as a as a black feminist that suggested that because I said that Michelle Wallace was wrong and that black men did not seek to dominate black women during the civil rights movement uh, as articulated during black power, mm -hmm. uh, that my paper was anti-woman. Uh, she proceeded to then spread this rumor around the conference that my paper in session was anti-woman because I said Michelle Wallace was incorrect. And one of the things, one of the things that that generated uh, in me was the need to really address this, what I say is an essentialist or stereotypical issue mm -hmm. that any time black men assert themselves contrary to the gender politics of the university, anytime black men assert themselves politically, uh, they will be called anti-woman, misogynistic, sexist, dangerous, etc. Mm. And this concept worried me because when I start doing research for the book, what I discovered is that this was the exact same argument mobilized by white female suffragists when black mm. men were fighting for uh, the right of emancipation, right. And, uh, the right of enfranchisement, I'm sorry, uh, in the 15th Amendment. So my, my mind started start trying to make these connections, and I asked myself, I was like, how is it possible that in 1868, Elizabeth Cady Stanton is advancing the argument that if black men get the right to vote, that they, because they're a tyrannical class, they will beat, whip, and rape women. And you see the same kind of stereotype not only coming out of the work of Michelle Wallace and the black macho, mm -hmm. saying if you give black men civil rights, they will want to sleep, rape, dominate white women and black women. And then you see this stereotype within academic spaces where every attempt of a black man male to assert himself is met with the idea that he says he's misogynistic and patriarchal. What is the connection about the frames that we have historically used for 100 years to talk about black men mm -hmm. and black men's assertion as a voice and the relationship that it has to black men actually speaking and disagreeing individually as scholars? Mm. So this book was a way to contextualize what I take to be stereotypes that have gained the reputation of theory, mm -hmm. uh, but have absolutely no evidence to support them uh, substantially. Mm. So the man not is an attempt to demystify what I think is the routine gender theories okay. that have defined black men as aspiring and pathological patriarchs mm. that erase the ability of us to see their humanity 
to appreciate and empathize with their suffering mm-hmm. and to actually study them as living and not dying beings. Mm. Wow. That's deep, bro. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's deep. And, um, you know, of course, as you as you have said, there's going to there are going to be many who do, who disagree, you know, with, with with your ideals and your thought processes, you know, but that's OK, you know, because you are allowed to to, you know, be a scholar in this field, just like everyone else Absolutely. And to, you know, uh, you know, push forward your, your ideals and your beliefs and you you back them up. I mean, you've done you've done the research. Absolutely. And, you know, and, Absolutely. And, and no one can say that, you know, you don't have positive goals, positive outcomes in mind. You're looking to do what other people are doing in gender studies, which is to support, you know, your gender and, and you know, right. the ideals about, you know, about your gender, young males, older males, particularly black males in general. Yes, and absolutely. The, and the whole idea that it's important uh, to study black males. You know? Yeah, I think I think one of the things one of the problems that we have as black intellectuals uh-huh. is that we moralize what we what we take to be scholarship. OK. Uh, one of, in a way and I, I'll be very specific in this regard. Sure, go ahead. One of the ways that we do this is when when black people come up with certain theories, those theories aren't used to explain phenomena. They become moralities that signal the politics of the particular black scholar or individual. Mm. So when we talk about things like black feminism, when we talk about things like uh, queer, black queer studies, uh, when we talk about things like intersectionality, okay. the assumption is that if you don't uphold these paradigms, then you are anti-woman, sexist, misogynistic, whatever the, you know, fill in the blank, whatever the fill in the blank, right? There's so many stereotypes associated with it. Uh, one of the one of the ideas that are generated from this is that these theories, because they're popular theories, have said everything that needs to be said about black males. Okay. So even though black men, and this is and this is the contradiction. Okay. Whereas every other group in the academy is allowed to speak and research themselves, the argument when it comes to black men is that black men do not deserve that courtesy. Mm. So white men have masculinity studies. White women have feminism. Black women have black feminism and intersectionality. But black men don't have a space to speak about themselves because the argument becomes that black feminism has said everything that needs to be said and can be said about black male experience. Mm -hmm. So that means that black men, black boys, black students, black professors are being discouraged from researching themselves Mm -hmm. from paradigms endemic to their experience and their own histories and are rather taught to frame themselves as objects and threats of someone else's Mm -hmm. experience as the basis of how you want to interpret the black male, black male existence. Mm-hmm. I try to correct that. So there is a long debate, and I mean when I say long, decades-long debate, mm-hmm. between intersectionality theorists and social dominance theorists. Okay. Social dominance theory suggests that intersectionality makes a categorical mistake, whereas it assumes that black and woman leads to more oppression mm-hmm. uh, under under uh, patriarchy because they're dealing with race and sex okay. that could be additive or interactive. You know, mm-hmm. when you read the literature, sure, sure. Uh, sure. Social dominance theorists say, well, look, let's go test this. Let's test. So when, when Sedanius tests the theories of whether or not racialized males are subjugated, subordinate males, as he calls in his work are oppressed, he finds that they experience greater levels of lethal violence in 
Western capitalistic patriarchal societies okay. than their racialized female counterpart. He finds that they experience more job discrimination, more housing discrimination, higher, higher interest rates, more incarceration. And he's done this study, study comparatively, not just on the United States, but in the UK, in different parts of Asia, etc. So there are other theories that look at subordinate male status in different ways outside of what something like intersectionality and black feminism may do. Okay. That's not to say that those theories don't have a place, but it's also it's to say that they have a limitation mm-hmm. when you try to apply those theories to black men and boys. Mm-hmm. So what my book does is try to use, because Sidanius is, is, is a black male professor, psychologist at Harvard, uh, is to try ex- to expand on that work, to try to expand and enrich those theories mm-hmm. so that we can have a historical and conceptual account mm-hmm. of black men in the United States. And what we find is that his theory explains much more in terms of discrimination, homicide, uh, these types of things. Mm. And that we get out of intersectionality because in intersectionality, the male category is always a privileged category. Oh. So intersectionality claims that black men have a privileged disadvantaged status. Okay. And this is why we constantly get conversations about black male privilege, not because they actually exist, but because the analytic of male, the category of male means privilege in an intersectional matrix. Okay. So even when black men are behind their female counterparts, when they have, they have the lowest life expectancy in the United States, they're the most underrepresented in the academy. They're the most overrepresented in the, in the uh, penal systems and mass incarceration. Mm-hmm. They, they have the highest rates of homicide. They have the highest rates of unemployment, right? When you look at the massive disadvantages, that black men have not only to black women, but the larger society. Mm-hmm. Then you have to ask yourself, what does the word privilege even mean within that context? Right. I'm trying to refocus the conversation mm-hmm. where we say, if we look at the maleness of black men, okay. in what ways does this make them vulnerable? So I, co- I, I coined the term black male vulnerability. Okay. How do we understand the fungibility of black males in an anti uh, black environment mm-hmm. such that they become the phantasm of white people's terrors. Mm. And as they are the phantasm of white people's terrors, how is that built into the social organization of American society? And okay. more so, how is that, that terror then reflected in academic theories? Mm. So what I suggest, for example, in the book, okay. is that while we have a social etiquette that would call, w- would say that stereotypes about black men as rapists as criminals as deviants would be deemed racist okay when you take those very same stereotypes and make them into gender theories okay that that black men have toxic masculinity that black men want to rape for power that black men want to others it becomes Mm -hmm. acceptable so Mm -hmm. i argue in the book that there's a recodification recodification of racial stereotypes as gender theory that allows it to be assimilated mm. within the disciplines of the of the at-large academy. So when we identify these theories, because we can trace the origins of them, right? We can sure. trace. Right. So, right. so I'll give you a very good example of this. Go ahead. The idea that black men are hypermasculine. Okay. Hypermasculinity was a concept that was developed by white sociologists trying mm-hmm. to account for why black men rejected certain feminine ideas in single parent households. Okay. So in the Mark of Oppression, which was written by uh, Avesi and Cardinia in the 1950s, mm-hmm. they use psychoanalysis to show that black men who do not have strong father figures 
are neurotic, that they have low self-esteem and they try to imitate the, the, the white culture. Okay. But because the white culture is so far away from them because of segregation, right? Because they're, they're the caste system in Jim Crow. Right. Black men end up imitating their mothers. In the 1960s and 70s, this becomes referred to as a female personality disorder. So mm. black men, because they don't have fathers, don't go through the Oedipal complex, and then they end up being malformed individuals through exhibiting different female characteristics in terms of fashion, job occupation, and notions of the family. Okay. So this extends the kind of stuff that you get out the 19th century where black men were always seen as more feminine. In the 60s, 50s, 60s, and 70s, they say it was because they had feminine personalities. The effect of that was deviance. And the name for deviance became hypermasculinity because the white sociologist said black men, because they had a feminine personality, would try to overcompensate for the lack of the father right. by becoming right. more masculine and rejecting the feminine. This was the dominant view of black men within white social sciences from the 1950s to 1988. So when black feminism comes along in the mid in the early to mid 1980s and adopt this terminology, hypermasculinity does not refer to black men simply over acting overtly masculine, rejecting the feminine. This is what which is how we use it today. But it has its basis in the malformation of the black ego of the black male ego. So we've taken a racist term that assumes the same kind of assumptions as Monaghan because women lead the households and communities right. as the basis of how we describe black males, even though our contemporary gender theories disown Monaghan as being nothing but racist, racist propaganda. So we've taken, we've, we've disowned the part about the community's failing because it's run by women, but mm-hmm. we've kept the part that says that black men are not really men and hence malformed, which mm-hmm. means that they're deviant pathological and overcompensate for maleness. My point is, is that when we utilize these kinds of theories, which have no basis in actual fact, that we allow the gender theory, the gender account of black men to be completely residing on the side of racist white social science. And because nobody goes back and questions the intellectual history or genealogy of these terms, how did it come to be used to describe black males? Right. We've assumed that simply because certain writings in gender theory or certain intersectional writings or black feminist writings utilize these terms, that they are, in fact, accurate and correct depictions of black male existence. Mm -hmm. So my book is going through these lineages, is trying to Mm -hmm. show that the assumptions that we've made in things like hypermasculinity or even even some of the arguments about domestic abuse in our communities. Because okay. in the 1980s, you have people like Bell Hooks. In the late 1980s, you have people like, uh, or early 90s, you have uh, Kimberly Crenshaw writing that piece on mapping the margins, right? These, mm-hmm. these arguments are not based on any actual study of black men. These arguments are based on Ellen Pence and Michael Pavmar's version of the Duluth model, where they say men mm-hmm. abuse for power. They didn't test any black men for that. They used white people and, uh, and, and, and Native Americans. So they're using theories that uh, Ellen Pence, in fact, says she made up because they don't have clinical findings to support that interpretation. It was more of an ideological okay. assertion to frame all the discussions of the rates of domestic abuse of black men in the 1980s. The problem is when you go back and look at the data, black men and black women abused each other at equal rates. In fact, from 1976 to 1992, Black men were the greatest victims of intimate partner homicide in this country. Wow. 
So that means that when we're developing theories to account for the conflicts that we find in black communities and black households, mm-hmm. we say that black men are abusing black women for power, but black men are simultaneously, when they're making this assertion, the greatest mm-hmm. intimate partner homicide. Mm-hmm. So we'll be, they're also they're being also being abused and they're being killed at higher rates by by their by their female spouses. So okay. even when you look at this today, you see that while you may have a lifetime prevalence of six point six million black women who experience intimate partner right. violence, you also have five point one black men that experience intimate partner mm-hmm. violence. If you look at twelve month prevalence rates, you see that one point five million black men in a twelve month period are going to experience domestic violence, and one point three five million black women in twelve months are going to experience domestic violence. So we have this kind is of, referred to as bidirectionality in the literature that's never okay. spoken about. Because we conceptualize black men as pathological, violent, and dominating, such that we can never see their suffering and victimhood, even when it's on par with their female counterpart. So what I'm trying to do is unravel the pathology that both has us, has us interpret black men as only perpetrators of violence against women, children, and other members of their community, and how those stereotypes involving black men are utilized to erase the pain, suffering, and death of black men within their own community. Mm. You, you got it going there, brother. Take, take a break, brother. <laughs> that, was, that was deep. <laughs> wow. And so we're, we're, we're talking with Dr. Tommy J. Curry, and he's a professor of philosophy and Africana studies at Texas A&M University. And we're talking about his book from Temple University Press, The Man Not, Race, Class, genre i want to say gender right. but race class genre and the dilemmas of black manhood and you know y'all if you can't tell from listening to dr curry here this is some deep stuff and you know he's maybe talking talking about some things and talking about them in some ways that you may not be as familiar with or you may even somewhat not agree with but check his book out check out his research and check out his studies because he, he documents. And as you can hear from just what we've been talking about here in the past few minutes, he goes back and, and lets you know where some of these things that we just hold to be just truths and self-evident today, where those ideals come from. Right. And he is advocating for black male studies, black male studies, not black males being studies as a, as a part of someone else's areas of research, but studies of black males, in of and for black males, by black males, and you know concerning black males, and so his book may be the first in a long line. This you know, this is going to be an influential book for years to come, brother. Curry. I hope so. I hope so. I I you know I think so. So the so the man not Tommy J Curry, and you know I want to want to talk a little bit about uh, the title the man Absolutely. not. As well, as well as this image on the cover, because some people may not be familiar, and you, and you touch on in, in the book, Tommy, of the story of uh, young Stennett here. So can you, can, well, I guess we should kind of separate into two parts, right? Talk about the man, right. not the title, and then maybe we could talk about that image on Absolutely. the cover. Absolutely. Um, let, me, let okay. me begin by saying, so George Stenny represents the title to me. And, and here's a little bit of the kind of my philosophical perspective on race. All right, go ahead. So... In in the academy, there are groups of scholars that view race as a marker for different aspects of humanity. So race, class, gender, these are markers of white anthropology, how white people have named difference throughout their history. 
the way that I approach race and gender is that they they mark certain zones following phenomena of non-being, of non-existence, of where black people exceed the limits of ontology such that they 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 grow from phantasm and terror. Right? We're not accounted for by Western or white notions of humanity or the citizen or the person or the individual. That being said, my book does not argue uh, that black men should be understood within the gender category, which is why I use the term genre. What I argue is that black men are a specific kind of being slash existence that requires farther study. And here's why I don't use the term gender. Gender is a colonial category. And what I mean by that is that in the 19th century, the only gendered races were white races. So in night, so the first chapter talks about this. When, when white people saw, saw themselves as civilized, they also saw themselves as patriarchal because for them, patriarchy marked the evolution of a race to have sexual okay. division. So that's why you had the white male, who was, of course, the patriarch, but you also had the white female, which was a patriarchal mm -hmm. female. When you look at the debates amongst early feminists, they made this argument. Elizabeth Cady Stanton, mm -hmm. for instance, when she was arguing about the 15th Amendment, constantly said that white women were more civilized and black men, immigrants, etc., were of lower orders. So mm -hmm. the way that ethnology worked in the 19th century was that gender did not belong to bodies. It belonged to races. So all savage wow. races were feminine. Right. Wow. So, right, because it's very different in the 1800s than how it happened in, in the, you know, uh, in the 1900s, in the 20th century. Got it. That's a piece of history that no one's talked about. Because mm -hmm. we've taken gender to be a universal category that it simply marks male and female characteristics are the masculine and the feminine. If we use the ethnological standards, we use the science and history of the actual time, then what we see is that gender refers to a certain development of European thought and thinking rather than an actual explanation of black people who were ungendered, savage, and animalistic. So that means, for example, that when black men gained freedom or were emancipated, I don't think we were getting free, but when we were emancipated, that's right. why um, the, birth, the, the rape mythology came about. And the misunderstanding of the okay. rapist, and this is the important part, the misunderstanding of the rapist was not that it was a stereotype, right? Mm -hmm. So Angela Davis is only partially correct on this issue. The rape, the rapist, was what happens when feminine black men, right? Because we're in the 19, we're in the 1800s, the 19th century, right? Reached puberty right, right. because they were feminine and male. When they reached puberty, they became the rapist, not man. So mm -hmm. throughout the book, I document the findings of sexologists and ethnologists who argue that this is the uh, ontogeny or development of black males throughout society, throughout, throughout America. Wow. That their racial development was from feminine child, right? Fe female male child, this is how they actually refer to in the studies, to rapists. Mm -hmm. Now that's immensely important, right? This, because this is the science of the day. That's immensely important mm -hmm. because in the 20th century, <clears throat> when you have black men arguing that they're a man, they're arguing against the rape myth. They're saying that we are civilized peoples, that we are people with culture, people who can assert a kind of humanity. But we don't mm -hmm. read black men as fighting for humanity. 
we read black men as trying to imitate <clears throat> white manhood. And the problem with that is that because black men were separated at an evolutionary level from white manhood, they took as their major charge to fight against white patriarchy. Because white patriarchy was generating the white man's burden and the white woman's burden. So black men formed black male, black bur- black male's burden societies precisely to mm-hmm. push the fact that they were not men in the sense of white people and that they did not believe that you should be spreading white supremacy and white culture to Africa and the darker world. <clears throat> so this development of black maleness, right, throughout the 19th and 20th century has been completely overlooked. The assumption is that we can study black men even within this history as just mm-hmm. males. So this is where I talk about the mimetic thesis, that black men are not different kinds of beings, right? They're just lesser white men. This is, mm. this is the distinction I'm trying to make through the book. When you look at intersectionality, the argument isn't that, well, black women are lesser white women, right? Black feminists reacted to Catherine McKinnon when she asserted that. As Catherine McKinnon asserted that black women were just poor white women. They were, they were basically the same as poor white women. And they, black mm. women said, no, <clears throat> we have a culture. We have, we have different experiences. Black plus woman means that that is a fundamentally different being. But in those very mm. same theories of intersectionality, Blackness and male doesn't operate to show it's a completely different type of being. It says that maleness leads to domination and the want of patriarchy. So black maleness is simply the inability to exercise those wills of domination and the power of patriarchy like whiteness. So black men Mm. are then defined by their lack, their negation, right? Rather than an experience when they have positive resources to talk about how they've built revolutionary and ideal concepts of manhood. So the man not is a title that both reflects that negation that black people, black men have historically not been men. And it resists the idea that we can simply explain black men within the concepts, European concepts of gender or humanity. Right. So that's what makes it genre. Exactly. Exactly. Because my argument is that the history of the development of black males in the 19th and 20th century, even when you're looking at hypermasculinity, has always been the negation of men. So they became feminine. They, become, they became feminine men, males throughout ethnology. So the question that I'm constantly asking is how do we have a universal concept of gender where black men imitate it, where there's this mimesis of black men saying that they want white manhood when they were not only excluded for, from it, but evolutionarily defined outside and they responded to this. This isn't just white people talk. Black men are responding to this. They're saying that our notions of manhood don't have to exclude women. This is Du Bois. This is Blight. Right. You have black men writing poetry in the 1890s like X-Ray saying that we should never that manhood should not be the basis by which we colonize the world. Rather, it should enrich the democratic and matriarchal concepts of Africa. You have black men making mm-hmm. these arguments that we never hear about because we've reduced them down to the trope that they simply wanted to be white men. So their history of liberation, the history of the civil rights movement, the history of the Black Panther Party, right? Even the American, the American Negro Academy simply becomes mm-hmm. their political attempts to gain white male power. And this is framed by exactly what Michelle Wallace is saying in The Black Macho and, of course, what Bell Hooks argues in 1982 in uh, Ain't I a Woman. And I'm saying that these frames are disconnected from the actual negation of black maleness, that black maleness did not seek to imitate white patriarchy, but sought to refute it. 
And I think that when you look at the debates that black men are having in the 1860s on the 15th Amendment, you can see that black men were arguing that they were citizens or should have the right to vote as, as part of citizenship, but simultaneously right. that they, have a, they are of a fundamentally different cultural type than the white male in America. And you can see people like Frederick Douglass make this argument as early as 1854 in his reflections on ethnology. So mm-hmm. we've misread black men, I think, intentionally to prop up certain mm-hmm. politicized notions of gender that are valued in the academy that does great violence and erasure to the particularity of black male experience over the last two or three centuries. So the man not kind of marks that place of non-being, um, that place of, of mm-hmm. wretchedness and oppression where we have to create mm-hmm. tools to examine that. We're not trying to speak. I am not trying to speak about black men within a gender category that's arguing for or against gender oppression. I'm arguing that we need right. new tools to understand the conceptualization and history of black males as being non-beings but racial terrorists, such as the rapist, such as the deviant, the criminal, the murderer, etc. Right. So George Stanley, of course, right. Uh, right. Getting the, yeah, the, the image on yeah, the cover. I chose right. that image because George Stinney was the impossible caricature of a young black boy. George Stinney was was electrocuted because he was convicted of murdering two white girls with the intent to rape. It is beyond the imagination and, and, and current documents have come forth to show that the court even knew that this young black boy did not do this and that they knew that a white man had did it. So they're still fighting for him to be uh, exonerated from, from, from this for this mm-hmm. crime. George Stinney represents the actuality, the death boundness of black males, because he is a 14 year old boy that was accused not only of having the physical or superhuman power to kill and murder two white girls uh, that were very close to his age in many respects, but also did so because he wanted to rape them. So the historical phantasms in the white mind that construct black men as ter- as living terrors, as, as sexual predators, was exemplified by the death, murder, and execution of George Stinney. He was the the scapegoat. He was the malleable boogeyman, so to speak, that white people Mm -hmm. used to justify the death. His death was an example to other black males that if you ever think that you exemplify or demonstrate maleness, then you you will be killed. And this is something, and, and an important point here, is that throughout the book, I document that this was not only the province of other white men, but this also involved white women. So it was white men and white women who believed in the hypersexualization and terrors of black males throughout history and society. Mm. In fact, I argue that feminism, white feminism from the mid 19, from the mid 1800s forward, utilized the caricature of the black male rapist and the black male terror to justify not only imperialism, but to justify their political access to the public under the rights of suffrage. So that's why you have someone like Rebecca Latimer saying that giving black men the right to vote made the mistake of making them believe that they are men. And because they are of a lower order of men, they are now rapists. So to free white women, we shall rape a thousand niggers a week. If need be. Mm. So you can see the relationship between the idea of the rapist being a free black man and how white feminists alongside white sought to expand their power in the public realm by executing and demonizing black men as rapists and threats to their womanhood. 
This dynamic, I argue, has existed not only in the, the, the 1800s and the 19, or the 19th century, but we see the reproduction of these kinds of ontologies and stereotypes uh, against black power in the civil rights movement. So we, yes. right, the militarized black man, right, Michelle Wallace saying that <clears throat> Amiri Baraka and Eldridge Cleaver uh, were, were rapists that were propagating the idea that black male power comes through rape. Uh, again, you know, all stereotypes. Uh, the chapter on Cleaver, I think, is very important uh, because it separates the timeline that he was convicted of, of rape in the mid uh, 1950s. Uh, but he was not part of the black power movement or Black Panther Party until 1966. When we examine his other writings, uh, we see that rather than just being uh, uh, a, heterose- a hyper heterosexual macho that wanted to rape and kill women, that he was actually a man quite torn and thoughtful about sexuality, specifically, specifically the instrument of rape and the rape myth. Uh, we find that he had uh, a relationship with a black man named Richard while he was in prison, that he struggled with his homosexuality. He struggled with his attachments and attraction to Richard, what it made him, uh, whether or not you could have a revolutionary black male body uh, that loved other men. Uh, so it reveals a side of Cleaver that does not make light of the fact that he was a self-admitted rapist, but contextualizes that within the general dynamic of Jim Crow violence, which I argue not only included the lynching of black men, but also included the rape of black men by white men and white women. So Cleaver, I argue, is reacting to someone like Emmett Till being framed, right? Because we now know that the white woman actually admits before she's about to die that she lied about what happened with Emmett Till. Right. right. That he never right. approached her, that he never touched her, that it was only a winker and a whistle rather than an actual attempted rape that he was executed for. So Cleaver's reacting both to Till and to the history of rape that I argue is exemplified by something like the case of Willie McGee, where he was raped by a white net woman named William Meta Hawkins while he was actually doing housework mm-hmm. for. Him. So these two dynamics of black male existence or black male vulnerability, where black men are simultaneously the rapists but also the victims of rape by white women and white men is the sexual dynamics of racism that I think Cleaver is taking up within Jim Crow violence that has not yet been explored. Mm. In my future work, I'm referring to this as the dynamic of phallicism, where black men uh, or racially oppressed men, but black men specifically, can simultaneously be the the sexual terror like the rapist, but are also hypersexualized as objects of desire such that you can see in every account that you have rape mythologies, you have these same subordinate group of men being raped by men and women. So the book tries to reorient us conceptually uh, in terms of how we see black males, black male vulnerability, and the sexual violence uh, that black men have experienced throughout history. And that that book that uh, Dr. Curry is talking about is The Man Not. The man not. He just explained to you what what the title meant and uh, the subtitle race, class, genre, not gender, genre and the dilemmas of black manhood. This is powerful stuff. Here, Brother Curry. This is very a lot of research stuff. went into it. And yeah. And, you know, I'm, I'm looking forward to, um, you know, hearing and reading about, you know, people's mm-hmm. reactions you know, to the book and what they learned. You just book just came out here in, in June. So we're getting you very early Absolutely. in the process. So thank you so much for, for spending time with us on the new books network uh, today during, during your summer. And so um, you mentioned some of your mm-hmm. future work that, that you, that you're 
that you kind of have in the pipeline. Is there anything else you know that you have going on, or you want to yeah, expand on that a little bit? You know, what else can we can, can we see uh, from well, you <laughs> or hear from you? Well, I'm actually I'm writing a sequel to this book. Uh, it's called okay. Mismeasures of Man: uh, Phallicism and the Paradoxes okay. of Racial Subjugation. And right, okay. this, so this book really does explore and expand on two of the lighter themes in, in my text. So I'm very interested okay. in uh, Sidanius' work on social dominance theory. And I briefly explained that he has a mm-hmm. different account. Uh, one of the things that I'm most concerned about in our current ways of talking about gender uh, and black males is what has come to be termed uh, intersectional invisibility. Now, intersectional invisibility, I'm sure you've heard this, where people have, you know, this is a common phrase in Black Lives Matter, right, that black women are invisible, that black women can't be seen because black men take up all the space of victimization. Mm-hmm. Well, that that articulation is really a hashtag of an article that was written in 2008 uh, by Purdy Hughes and Ibach. And what that article said, it was actually engaging social dominance theory. The article said the empirical weight that shows that black men are the greatest victims of violence and death under patriarchy cannot be refuted. Mm-hmm. So what we need to do to save intersectionality is create a third way. So it says that the additive approach that tested whether or not black women are more pro or women of color generally, but black women specifically in this context are more oppressed based on race and sex right. failed the empirical test. The interactive view that says, well, black women have a unique experience of racism uh, and sexism uh, as subjects kind of failed the empirical test. So they say, given the weight of the empiricism, we have to come up with a term of invisibility. And here's what this argument says. Intersectional invisibility argues that because black males are more prototypical, meaning they're more like white men because they are males, that is why okay. white patriarchs and a patriarchal society will target racially subordinate men for, for violence and death. So it says that because mm. it's a patriarchal society and men have more worth than women, men are going to be targeted for violence because they're seen as more important subjects. Purdy Hughes argues that this is privilege, that being targeted for violence and death in a patriarchal society when you're male is a kind of privilege and androcentrism. And while, mm. while black women or other women of color or even white women are safer because of invisibility, that's an example of patriarchal discrimination and violence because of erasure. Right. I have that. So, but this is important because this is how these discussions are framed. So the logic says that while that it's bad to be invisible because we don't recognize certain subjects, even though the authors of the article say that invisibility's advantage is that they're not targets of direct violence and oppression. That black men, even though they're being killed, even though they experience police brutality, even though they have shorter lifespans, you have to interpret all that violence, all that disadvantage as privilege because they are men. And I say that this infects the way that we interpret the suffering of black males. Because it tells us, as in the case of something like police brutality, that even though 290 to 300 plus black men are killed per year by police, that the ways that we should look at female death in that way has to be equal, not because of the actual numbers, but because we have to, Mm -hmm. we have a problem of recognition and erasure, right? 
That's not to say, right, because I know I know how some gender theorists are. That is not to say that black women's deaths by police should be ignored. It's not to say that it's less valuable. I certainly don't believe that. Mm-hmm. But it is to say that because there is this account where black men are somehow privileged, even in death, right, that mm-hmm. black men's suffering is worth less than the one to one suffering that we take black women, other women or other subjects to endure. Ah, uh. So when we lose nine to ten black women, each one of their lives matter because each one of those people are human beings. When we look at black men, we don't see 300 individual lives. We just see the death of black men. We see corpses. And that's how it's explained to us in the media. Well, those are 300 black men, but black men, because they're so dehumanized, don't have worth as individual human beings. Their, Their death is merely a descriptor, a quantitative stand in for the wretchedness of that group generally. So I argue that the problem with intersectional visibility logic is that it presupposes the dehumanized status of black males first and foremost to suggest that greater violence means it should mean less significance or less empathy with that group. And the problem with this, and you could just, I mean, if you just think about this, the problem with this is that even in things like genocidal violence, right, where because in genocides, what you usually find is that battle age men are the first killed so they can they have less resistance to killing the rest of the group. You could uh, say that because right. if, if it's patriarchal side, you would even say that the, that the beginning of genocidal violence would be articulated as a kind of privilege because of the prototypicality of the racialized and subordinate male given this theory. And we would never say something like that about the relationship between Nazis and Jewish men. So why do we insist no. on suggesting that the relationship between white men and black men is one where even when black men are targeted by white men, somehow that's a relationship of privilege and desirability to be like white men rather than what it really is, which is the material effects of violence. In the very, said differently, mm. how is it that the violence and death of black men within a white patriarchal society is privileged, but the, the, the violence and death of women or women of color in the same society is an example of oppression? There's a fundamental contradiction of terms which values the, the idea of maleness differently and deterministically over the vulnerabilities of the violence itself. All right. Uh, so the work that I'm doing in the future is exploring this dynamic uh, under the idea of phallicism. Right. And I'm arguing that black men have experienced a simultaneous hypermasculization and effeminization in the dynamics of racial oppression. That on the one hand, you have black men that are feminine, lazy, irrational, illogical, etc. On the other hand, you have them hyperaggressive, mm-hmm. hypermasculine, hypersexual, rapist, side. So the maleness term of black men doesn't exist as a statement of their position as men. Rather, it's kind of a vacuous term that can be both the hypermasculine and the negation of the masculine simultaneously. And I argue that this position doesn't have to is not simply theoretical, right? but okay. it can be shown through historical and sociological evidence. I like testing the theories I develop. It can actually be shown and to have uh, to explain the dynamics that we've seen with black men uh, throughout history. And I also will have a comparative study in that book where I say where I show that you can not only find this dynamic among racially subjugated males in the United States, but you could also see this dynamic uh, in racialized men during genocides or other repressive regimes. So I've made the same discovery when I've looked at Jewish men in the Holocaust. I've I've found some archives that uh, talk about this in the Armenian genocide. So the next area that I'm looking at is uh, is Japanese internment internment camps uh, in the United States to see if we see similar conceptualizations of 
uh, Asian men during the Yellow Peril being constructed both as the rapists and feminized in such a way that they were victims of sexual assault and rape themselves. Okay. So, wow. Yeah, that's that's a that's a nice follow up. Or, or yeah, that's what I'm hopeful. Uh, how you want to? Yeah, to 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 frame it. Um, no, any title? Oh yeah, yet, the mismeasures or? of man. The mismeasures of man. Yeah. Oh, that's right. You just say that's right. The but the thing is, of man. the right. thing is, is that you know, I think the way that we view males, uh, especially racialized males, uh-huh. uh, is just so resistant to actual study. Uh, you know, one of the one of the criticisms black men will always get in advocating something like a black male studies is that the work's redundant because people are going to suggest, of course, along certain ideological lines that black feminism or queer theory um, have all already done this work. Uh, and I adamantly disagree with that because there has not been an exploration of black maleness outside the frames of gender or sexual orientation. And, and I'll give you a really quick example of what I mean here. When we talk about black men and heterosexuality versus homosexuality, we often draw sharp distinctions with the assumption that black men, because they're hypersexual, are more homophobic. Uh, we don't really have data to suggest that. What we, what we have is data that suggests black men are no more homophobic than anybody else in their communities. But um, what's interesting is if you think about this historically, the work that I've done has shown that black men were victims of rape by white men during slavery and Jim Crow. So the question that I'm always asking, and this this partially comes from Vincent Woodard's work, The Delectable Negro, but it actually throws into kind of conflict and, and, and t- shows the tensions of his last uh, sections of the book where he's talking about homosexual black male identity. Um, is what when you're dealing with white supremacy and the erotics of white uh, of slavery. Whether or not you identify as gay or straight, the powerlessness of that situation means that you're both sodomized by white men. So how do we understand the relationship between black maleness, not not as an identity of heterosexual or homosexual male, but black maleness as a category of sexual exploitation? In other words, because black men had no power under slavery and they were raped, just like black women were raped by white men and white women, what does an identity matter to the position of having no power? What does a self-identification matter in a world where you are fungible to the wills of other people who designate themselves as human and you as not human? If we take that view, then we see that many of the violence, much of the violence that we see happening to black men in society today, because black men are still being raped by cops, right? They're still being annually penetrated with screwdrivers and batons. What does that say about the black male body that cannot be captured by the identity politic of how one identifies themselves as an identity or as a sexual practice? That is what I'm interested in. My book is not interested in playing the oppression Olympics. My book is interested in redefining the very ways that we have established a category of thought around blackness and maleness. Because my argument is that okay. black maleness or the black male is unthought precisely because we have no terms that allow us to accurately describe their histories or their present suffering. And it's that okay. maleness category wow. that has us continually overlook the fact that black men are victims of domestic abuse, that black men have been the victims of rape, that black men continue to be the victims of sexual violence even in our own communities because young black boys are raped not only by black men but also black women. 
The average age of sexual debut for black boys is around 14. That means that when black boys lose their virginities, they are usually losing their virginities to women who are older than them and where they become victims of statutory rape. Despite this fact has been documented, we found I found a source from 1951 that says that the average age of black boys uh, first engaging in sex is six to nine. And the conclusion was this is why black boys Mm. or black culture, black men have such a stigma around masturbation, because their age of sexual debut was basically as children from six to nine. It was never a point. Right. So these are what white social scientists are saying. We see the average age that black black boys talk about, you know, having their first sexual experience. By 14, that's statutory rape any way you cut it. But there are no conversations mm-hmm. about that victimization. There are no conversations about that trauma. There's no conversations about that sexual vulnerability as being a victim of rape, being a victim of statutory rape, and a hypersexualization of black boys as already being semi-black, you know, mature black men. It is, it is imposed right. upon young black boys that they want sex, and even though they have a body of the child, that their desires are that of, of grown men. So there are that we don't associate trauma with the experience of early sexual experience the way we would for a, a black woman or for white people, because he's a category of sexual predation. And this blinds us to the ways that I argue that phallicism is defining continuously the way that we interpret the racialized male. So black male studies is an attempt then to try to resituate that historical and empirical Condition or the empirical experiences of black men into a new way of studying them outside of gender and outside of the pathologies that the current gender theory uh, puts on. Well, when you get that that next book done and ready to go, we Absolutely. definitely got to get you Absolutely. back. <laughs> I'm looking forward to seeing and and, and reading about that one as, as well, brother. This I appreciate deep. it. This was this was this this was deep. And, you know, I thank you so much for for sharing your thoughts, your ideas and, you know, your 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 hard work in terms of your research with our audience here on the New Books Network, um, the New Books and African-American Studies channel, um, you know, particularly. And I know you're you're on the road. Yes, now, yes. So I definitely appreciate no, I appreciate you. the invitation. <laughs> brother. Take it. Yeah. Taking taking some time. Yeah, you know, for those of you, uh, you know, which you don't know because you can't see him, he's not at home. He's actually Dr. Curry is out on the road doing some some academic work right now. But you know, we definitely appreciate him taking some time out of his busy schedule to, uh, you know, talk with us on the New Books Network today. And and Tommy, before we go, because you know, I don't want to you know hold you all day. If people wanted to get in contact with you and you know, maybe converse with you or share mm-hmm. some of their stories or their information, you know, with you. What are some good ways they can? Oh, they can always them? email me. Uh, TJ Curry okay. at T-A-M-U dot E-D-U. Uh, I'm pretty good at responding okay. to emails, uh, especially if you're not white supremacists All trying right. to kill me. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, we, we, we won't get into that. Uh, Look up Tommy's name. Y'all, yeah. y'all can see uh, what he's talking about. Or you can catch me on Twitter uh, uh, <laughs> at Dr. TJC, so at D-R-T-J-C uh, is a good way to, to get in contact with me. Uh, I'm pretty much, you know, I'm, I'm trying to have conversations with the community. I'm trying to have conversations with, uh, you know, black people, black families, uh, you know. So I'm, I'm certainly eager to hear from uh, black communities, black students, black mothers, black fathers, uh, you know, what, what they think of the work. And Houston friends and family, don't worry. I've already been talking to Tommy about getting them to come to Houston and uh, 
and speak with us. So we're going to be talking a little bit more offline about that. So we're definitely going to get um, Dr. Curry down to Houston and, you know, talk about his views on black black male studies and, you know, all the things he talked about in The Man Knot and, and his other works. And um, again, the book is The Man Knot, Race, Clash, Genre and the Dilemmas of Black Manhood. The author, Tommy J. Curry, um, he's a professor at Texas A&M. The book is published by Temple University Press. Temple University Press. And thank you so much, Tommy, for, you know, again, taking no, time with us thank today. You. And, you know, and um, those who are listening, you can click through on our blog site on New Books Network if you're interested in purchasing Tommy's book. And I definitely think you should, whether you think you agree with everything he said or not. You know, you can um, read it, find the areas that you don't agree with, contact Tommy. I'll be happy to discuss. Be happy to discuss. <laughs> he'd, be happy to discuss. Would, uh, he'd be happy to discuss it with you. And so we've got it, you know, you can click right through and pick it up through um, uh, digital bookseller, Amazon.com. And you can, you know, find out uh, all about Tommy's work and his, his research and philosophy there at Texas A&M. And so, again, the book is The Man Not. And, Tommy, thank you so much thank for talking with us today on the New Books Network, the African-American Studies Channel. We're going to let you get back to work there and then enjoy the rest of your summer before you are back at work. Uh, yeah. Right. All right. So. Tommy, if you don't mind, can you say goodbye? Yes, to goodbye, and uh, I hope everyone enjoys the research and it, and it expands and helps humanize a group of people that, that are still fighting for humanity. Absolutely. And uh, Tommy J. Curry, remember that name, and you remember the book The Man Not, because this is going to be the first in a long line of books about black male studies, right? All right. So take care, everyone. And we'll see you and hear from you next time. Peace and love on the African-American Studies channel of the New Books Network. I'm your host, James Stanson. All right. We're back here on the African-American Studies channel of the New Books Network. I'm your host, James Stansel. I really hope you enjoyed that interview with Tommy J. Curry. Uh, thank you so much, Tommy, for spending some time with us. He's out at uh, his debate camp in Colorado. So he took some time from his schedule to talk with us about his new book, The Man Knot. Tommy would be glad and, and really would want to hear from you if you have any comments, positive or negative, or any thoughts or anything you want to share with him. Definitely please do so. You can contact him on his Twitter or his email as he shared with you. And again, black male studies, I think you're going to be associating Tommy J. Curry with that this new burgeoning feel of black male studies for a long time to come. On that note, we're going to say goodbye for now. Thank you so much for listening. Peace and love. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.